0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three, beginning with verse eight. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We've really boiled this text down to this statement. I believe it's in your bulletin this morning. This morning, we'll see the attitudes, actions, and speech that God blesses and those that He does not, so that we may assist each other in pursuing righteous, God-honoring lives. You are given some crucial and yet easy-to-understand principles that will help you live in such a way so as to honor God, to help others honor God. And that's why in your so that statement, we've said it this way so that we may assist each other. Right? You remember the message just a few weeks ago where I gave you five metaphors from the scripture that illustrate the structure. Remember that message? The biblical church, her structure. And so we talked about the fact that the church is a living organism, according to the scripture. The church is a building being constructed by the master builder, it's a body. So all of those things, and there are roughly 14 of those illustrations or metaphors throughout the Scripture. I chose five. The one that I think best helps you and me is the illustration of the body. I've had issues with my body this week, for sure. Maybe you have as well. And so you know quite well, you experience it, you feel it when part of your body is ailing or missing. It's not helpful in the way that it was designed to be helpful. What happens? Other parts of your physical body then compensate so as to serve your head. And that's what we are as the body of Christ. So we want to know, you want to know, I want to know, how can we better, how can we best serve each other so as to magnify or glorify the head of the church. Simply put, I've got a two-point outline that I, I gave to you last week. Point number one was the man that God blesses, the man that God rewards. Well, the last element of point one, the man that God blesses, is that he he prays effectively. He prays effectively. The Scripture says that his ears attend to their prayer. His ears attend to the prayer of the one who is righteous. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. His, his ears? Does God have ears? So an anthropomorphism from that term anthropos simply means a humanization of God so that you and I can relate to it. God does not have ears. So the Scripture speaks of him as if he has ears, so that you and I see this picture. We see God extending his ear toward those who are righteous the man that god blesses is the man whom god hears he has an effective prayer life what do i mean by an effective prayer life it's not the prayer that does anything it's god so we pray to him we don't just pray right we pray to him he is sovereign he is loving he is merciful he is provisionary he is kind he is gracious so we pray to him it's god that does the work we believe in him we trust in him the scripture never tells you to trust in prayer you to trust in the Lord through prayer. The man that God blesses is the man who prays effectively. Listen to this narrative in Psalm 66, starting with verse 16. "Come in here, all who fear God, which you know is one of the sub-themes of the book of First Peter. Fear of God. Something that many Christians have become ashamed of in the Christian culture. Uh, they don't want unbelievers to, to think about this idea of fearing God. No, no, no. God is loving. God is loving and He is fearworthy. We are commanded to fear Him. We are commanded to acknowledge the fact that fear is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs. So here David says, Come and hear all who fear God. And I will tell of what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth and he was extolled with my tongue. And then this little caveat, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. What is regard? The ESV says cherish if I harbor it, if I hang on to it. The precise opposite of this is in Proverbs 28.13. He who confesses and forsakes his sin will find compassion first part of that proverb says, "He who conceals it will not prosper." The one who conceals it, the one who regards it, the one who cherishes it, the one who hangs on to it, the one who does not want anyone else to know about it. fact like he wants to convince everyone else that it does not exist. And the Lord won't hear his prayer. And he wonders, why am I just not getting any rhythm with the people of God? Why am I just not sinking up? How come, you know, I can't get any respect? because he's harboring sin. And there is a strong sense in which God does not even hear his prayer. Now, God is omniscient. He knows your prayer before you pray it. Does he hear it? There's a sense in which he does. There's a sense in which he doesn't need to because he knows everything. God doesn't learn. But it's not as if God goes deaf with uh, cosmic wax in his ears and simply cannot hear you. Again, this is an anthropomorphism. The idea is that he intentionally turns a deaf ear to the person who clings to his own sin and refuses to acknowledge it give it a little time and if necessary give it a lot of time that person will be exposed he eventually will be exposed verse 18 if i regard wickedness in my heart the lord will not hear verse 19 but this is not where david rests but certainly god has heard he has given heed to the voice of my prayer Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Why? Because David confessed his sin. David gave it up. David chose to no longer attempt to live with self-righteousness, wanting to be seen as righteous. As you know, Nathan played a huge and very important role in that. In James 5, verse 16, James says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You see, the person who prays effectively is the person that God blesses. God uses that man, that woman's prayer life to effect much. You say, but God is sovereign. Isn't he going to do what he's going to do? And yes, and in his sovereignty, he has sovereignly decreed the means, not only the outcome. The means is prayer. God uses prayer, and he uses the prayer of the righteous man. Back in verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Show her honor. Show her honor. Simply as a person who has physical life. That's what that's talking about. It's not talking about eternal life. Simply as another person with whom you share life experience as a spouse. Show that person honor. Live with her understandingly, not waiting for her to become understandable, but being understanding, being receptive to the difficulties that she experiences as the weaker vessel. Be understanding. Treat her with honor. Oh, and by the way, if you don't, God won't hear your prayer. Black and white. Plain and simple. It's like math. And so, what happens in that man's life? He spins his wheels. He may be incredibly gifted. He doesn't honor his wife. God doesn't hear his prayer. He may be really good at pretending that God honors his prayer. But he doesn't honor his wife. God doesn't hear his prayer. He's not like the man in this text who prays effectively and that God blesses. He's not like this man to whom God turns his ears. God gives his ear in attendance to this man's prayer. In Psalm 138, really one of my favorite psalms, just a deeply heartwarming element in a most difficult time in my life. Psalm 138, verse 1. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. You know that passage in Hebrews where it speaks of going before the throne of grace with boldness. That's not with a puffed out chest and a stiff neck. That's a bold belief in the ability and greatness of the one who sits on the throne stark, radical trust in the God of heaven. That's what that is. And David here speaks of the same thing, that boldness and strength of soul that was zapped. It was gone. It was absent because David's life was so difficult. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. In Psalm 10, verse 17, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Incline is to bend down. Some of you who have spent a lot of time lifting weights, you know that the inclined bench is leaned down. It's not straight up. It's at an angle. It's inclined. And the picture here is that God inclines, much as you would with a small child, You would bend down. You would incline yourself to that person. And that is the word picture that we have of God for the person who is humble. Verse 18 in Psalm 10, to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. God will vindicate the orphan. God will vindicate those who experience terror at the hands of those who are evil. Psalm 17, verse 6, I have called... Upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Hear my words, Lord. I I know my words don't always add up to exactly what is completely and precisely reflective of who you are and, and what I need. But hear it anyway. Clean up the mess. Help me to think rightly. Hear me. Extend your ear to me. Incline to me. Psalm 71, verse 1. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. You see the hope of the psalmist? He knows that if he cries out to the Lord, and he knows, in addition, that if he cries out to the Lord, pleading with the Lord to hear his cry, that the Lord will hear his cry. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy, the psalmist says in Psalm 86. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. David's not being boastful here. He's not declaring something of himself that's not true. David is talking about the reality that he walks with God. He's leaning on the promise of God to bless those who are godly. He can do that. As he trusts in the Lord, he expects that the Lord will fulfill his promise to bless the one who trusts him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way about prayer. Prayer is the slender nerve that moveth the hand of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve. Seemingly insignificant, right? The slender nerve. But there is... Great importance in that slender nerve. Whatever that slender nerve is in your body, it's serving a purpose. Prayer is that slender nerve that moves God's hand. God uses His prayer. You say, well, is He sovereign or am I responsible? And the answer is yes. God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. It certainly does not negate the effective prayer of the righteous man. And see, the over- simplistic mindset that comes to the Scripture and says both of those things can't be true just needs to grow up. That person just needs sound teaching. He needs to be around godly people. He needs to be saturated with the Scripture. John the Apostle goes on in 1 John 5 verse 14 saying, This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will He hears us. Your father hears you. Someone told me years ago, (laughs) I worked with this gal in Houston years ago. She had two children, and she said, Todd, one day you're going to have kids, and I'm telling you, you're going to love one of them more than the others. I was on the phone with my sister yesterday. My mom is laying in a hospital bed right now. I can't even talk. She's lost him. She's doing much better, but my sister's kind of translating gasps and things like that, you know, head nods and, and my older brother walked in. Remember, I'm the baby. I'm the youngest of five. And my sister says something about who, whoever mom's favorite was. And my brother Steve, 17 years older than I am, he's the oldest. He said, well, obviously it's Todd. Now, Steve moved out right when I was born. What does he know? Right? He wasn't even there. I said, well, tell him he got out just in time. I said, and tell him, he doesn't know me if he thinks I'm my mom's favorite. And I, I do think that it can happen, you know, that by some measure of sinful default, you can start to have a greater affinity for one of you. Now you're all insecure wondering if it's you, right? Yeah, or not you. So I can tell you with full confidence, and my wife attested this the other day. She said, it's amazing how I've observed that you love all of our kids equally. And I'm thinking, well, I didn't try to do that. I mean, I just, they're all an immense blessing. Well, four of them are anyway. I'm kidding. I'm (laughs) kidding. But I do, and and this is true of the Lord. You see, how is that possible? Now, humanly, you could, and maybe you've been guilty of this, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you could be guilty of, of having a greater love for one child or some children more than others. Why? Because of performance. But if your love is based on who you are, your love, think of it. Let me say it again. Your love is based on who you are but rooted in who God is. Not the individual child. That is not love. That's performance-based response. Do you only... Let me get practical here for a moment. Do you only praise your children when they do something well? Or are you just every now and then just saying, I just love you. Just... Because it's in me to love you. That's what... God's perspective of you is. God loves you because it's in Him to love you. And so, He hears your prayer because He's granted you His righteousness. John goes on in verse 15 of 1 John 5 to say, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why, friends? Why is it that so many people have some sort of religious slash church experience, and they abandon it eventually? Why is that? What happened? Obviously, I don't know all the details in every situation, but I think it's a relatively educated guess to say that expectations were not met and so expectations listen to this expectations were not only wrong expectations were not only different expectations were destructive something other than what's best they were subpar someone wanted something out of the church experience that was other than that which was actually god's best and what god actually has well, I never met that man. You know, oh, the woman I did me, well, she was trouble. You know, my kids, I raised them in the church, and look what happened. So forget it. That's not what God blesses. God blesses the person who himself is righteous. God has determined to bless that person. He grants righteousness to that person. That righteousness is manifest in his life and specifically in his prayer life. Just as Jesus, nevertheless, Lord, no no matter what you pray, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And that does not mean that your will is going to be different from God's all the time. Sometimes it will, and you just don't know. But as you pray God's will from the Scripture, you know that that's God's will. You know that your will is God's will. If you're praying what God says is His will in the Scripture, that's safe, good, and right, spiritually beneficial. Point number two. Point number two, the man God condemns. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Corum Deo. It's the Latin term commonly used by the reformers for the face of God. Corum Deo, the face of God. It's representative of the presence of God. The charismatic movement today has just obliterated this concept with the idea that the presence of God is something you feel. It's not something that is, as Paul has expressed in Philippians 4, for the Lord is near. It is the idea that when God is here, you feel Him. You will not find this idea in your Bible. But man, is it prevalent. Why is it prevalent? Because it works. It works to grow churches. John 1, the face of God. For the Reformers, this was, and for we as Reformers today, the face of God is everything. The face of God turned toward those whom He loves. The presence of God, real, and in the life of a local church that's vibrant and humble and growing and dependent upon the gospel and feeding the poor and ministering to those who need the gospel, those who need help. In Exodus 33, verse 11, this phrase is used, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. What is that? Because you know, in Verse 18 of Exodus 33, Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord doesn't have a face. God doesn't have a face. The idea is that to come into such close proximity to the Lord would be because of the chasm, the great difference between the character of God and even the character of a godly man such as Moses, the man would instantly be incinerated because of the greatness of the holiness of God in contrast to the absence of holiness of man. It's a metaphor. God doesn't have a face. John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Yeah, You know the context of John 1, it is that the Word became flesh. And so what is our approach to the face of God? How do we arrive at the place of knowing that the face of God is giving us favor, that the presence of God is real? It is through a living and passionate approach and adherence to the Word of God. The person who receives the favor of the face of God, the favor of the presence of God, is the person who is in His Word. Psalm 80, verse 7, O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So an Israelite, right, crying out to the Lord, knowing that Israel has been greatly disobedient to the Lord, and God's face does not shine upon them. And he just pleads, Lord, just shine your face upon us. Just bless us may be that your presence would do that work in our lives? John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. The Son has seen the Father. The Son is one with the Father. They are two persons, but they are of the same Trinitarian Godhead. They are not two parts of a three-part God. They are both full persons. And so, the Son can say, I've seen the Father. You haven't seen the Father. Back in John 5, And the Father who sent me, he has testified, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So there's a disinterest in the person of Christ in the person that God's face does not shine upon. The person whose uh, life God's face shines upon, the person whose life in which God is present is the person who has a deep and abiding love for the person of Jesus Christ in His Word. In His Word. Jeremiah 44, verse 9. Now that we've looked at what it is to experience the favor of God. And this expression, the face of God shines upon us, or God, please cause your face to shine upon us. The idea that that is a favorable reality takes a very interesting turn here in Jeremiah 44, verse 9. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah and the wickedness of their wives? Your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. But they have not become contrite even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law or my statutes, which I have set before you and before your fathers, true of Israel, true of people today. That in their disobedience, in their obvious sin and their refusal to engage legitimate repentance. In verse 11, Jeremiah says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to set my face against you. For woe, even to cut off all Judah. So the face of God, which shines upon those whom he loves, which is an expression of his presence, the fatherly adoptive love that he grants to those whom his face shines upon, also is a face that he sets against some. In Psalm 5, verse 5, we are told that God has a special hatred for those who commit iniquity. You see a very similar phrase in Psalm 11, verse 5. This Hebrew term is sane, and yes, it is hatred. God doesn't hate the unbeliever. Yes, He does. See, say, I thought God loves the unbeliever. He does. And if you don't understand that, the problem is not that it's not true. The problem is that you and I tend to look at God through the grid of our own experience. We think, I couldn't love and hate someone at the same time, which probably isn't really true anyway. But the fact is that no, you can't have the kind of love and the kind of hatred that God has for the unbeliever because they are both completely righteous. The point is, the Hebrew term translated as hate is sane, and it means to set oneself against. It is a literal, positional activity. In other words, it is the result of God's disposition of righteousness against the unrighteous, the one who does evil. God has set himself against that person. Verse 12 of Jeremiah 44 says, And I will take away the remnant of Judah who have set their mind on entering the land of Egypt to reside there, and they will all meet their end in the land of Egypt. They will fall by the sword and meet their end by famine. Both small and great will die by the sword and famine, and they will become a curse, an object of horror, an imprecation, and a reproach. And they did. And this is true of the person who does evil today. It is true of the person who does not set his course toward the Lord. It is true of the person who is not righteous. It is true of the person who is not interested in harmony and sympathy and brotherly love and kindheartedness and humility, but he wants to be known as that person. And God has set himself against that person. He's turned his face, his loving face, his very presence, the greatness of God as applied in love to the person who is righteous is equally great in the application of his hatred against the person who does evil and refuses to repent of it. And he can fool a lot of people, folks. You should be concerned. For God to turn his face against those who commit evil is for him to unload the fullness of his righteousness and just fury that he would be vindicated and justice would be delivered because God is, in fact, just in fact, God is justice. God judges because he is judge. It is not simply the result of God thinking through the issues and exercising judgment as he determines it is best. It is the result of the fact that God is judge. It's his character. You do what you do because of who you are, sort of. Out of the mouth speaks the heart, mostly. God does what he does always because of who he is. Out of God's mouth always speaks the heart flawlessly. God acts. God does what he does always flawlessly. In a never interrupted fashion, what is reflective of his character, he can't do otherwise. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. God can only do that which results in his glory. He can only exercise justice. You say, does that negate mercy? No, no. God always exercises justice. God never does not exercise justice. You say, I thought he withholds justice from a believer. He does. His justice is fully poured out upon his son who committed no sin. And therefore, the one who has received that willfully, deliberately, intentionally, the one who has been granted the right to be called a child of God lives in that righteousness. He wants to be confronted about his residual unrighteousness. He longs for it. He pleads with the Lord. He prays to God. But the man who is yet condemned is the man who continues in that evil and pretends that it's not what it is. In John 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God awaits the moment. The right time at which the fullness of that wrath will be poured out. Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. There is no one of age who has cognitive ability who is with excuse. All men, all women are without excuse because the presence of God is evident within them. The existence of God is evident in their hearts as well as in all creation Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Wrath and indignation. Indignation is another word for hatred. Hatred of God, the wrath of God, the fury of God, the fullness of God's righteousness manifest in God's willingness to cause his face to be against Those who persist in disobedience. You'll love this though in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. This is where Paul has commended the Thessalonians. I love this book. Paul commends uh, as a pastor to the people who have received the Word of God as the Word of God, not as the Word of man. And by the way, in tribulation, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1, for they themselves, speaking about those in Macedonia and Achaia, the people in this region, they, they know you, they know about the Thessalonians. They themselves report about us. Listen closely. They report about us, Paul, Timothy, Silvanus, what kind of a reception we, Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, had with you And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So Paul can say about them, and he does. I know of his choice of you. I know of his election of you because of how you receive the word of God and the fact that people are talking. You've made an impact. And we've made an impact. You listened to our teaching. You responded. I'm going to read to you a a bit from Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century American theologian whose life and ministry continue to result in deep abiding impact on the people of God today. July 8, 1741. They deserve to be cast into hell so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using His power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down thither, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between Him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them so that they are bound over already to hell. He that believeth not is condemned already. So that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell, that is, his place, from thence he is. John 8, 23, ye are from beneath, and thither he is bound. It is the place that justice and God's word and the sentence of his unchangeable law assigned to him. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them, as He is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell who there feel and bear the fierceness of His wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth. Yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation who it may be are at ease than he is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. End quote. Jonathan Edwards is saying that God's anger burns much more hotly against those who are lukewarm. And the day is coming that his wrath will be poured out in full upon them. Edwards goes on to say, so that... It is not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and does not resent it that he does not let loose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such an one as themselves, though they might imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened its mouth under them. This is the rightful response of God against those who do evil. It's not unknown that in many pulpits today there is little or no speech at all of the consequences for sin. And what cultivates that in many cases is the fact that those who have continued in their sin are yet alive although that is an expression of God's grace, they would see it as something which bolsters them to allow to continue in their sin. And they don't see it for what it is. So they continue in their sin. Psalm 37, verse 8 says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy. To slay those who are upright in conduct, their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. It's no wonder then that Adam and Eve hid themselves from the face of God when they had sinned. They knew there were consequences. They had been warned. In the day that you eat, you shall surely die. And this is still the warning from God. The warning's no different. What do you do then? What do you do for the person who continues in his sin? What if you are the person who continues in sin? Hebrews 12, I think, answers that well for us. Hebrews 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. <laughs> That's sort of a, a lambast, isn't it? When you and I think, oh, but I've tried so hard to stop this sin. And the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't bled yet. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do you plead for God's disciplinary hand? You're struggling with sin? You're saying, but I just can't seem to get a handle on it. Do you plead with God to discipline you? Do you embrace discipline when it comes? Or do you reject it and slander others who bring it? Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, my son, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Verse 11 of Hebrews 12 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness, that to which God lends His ear. That to which God gives His attention. The one who desires righteousness is the one who says, Lord, bring discipline into my life. Bring correction. I wonder, those of you who are parents, how often you meditate on this with regard to your kids? How are you addressing this matter in your home with your children's conduct? You call it a stage when they blaspheme the Lord, when they rebel against you, when they misrepresent God, when they misrepresent your character? Do you do anything to cultivate their evil? And that's what it is, right? Do you do anything to cultivate it? What are you doing to draw attention to it? You say, but you you don't understand what my child has been through. And I say, you don't understand what your child is going to go through. If you're the parent who says, see, honey, I told you you're too soft on the kids, but you're the one who resorts to screaming, losing control, and returning evil for evil, you are just as guilty. The best way to create a hypocrite out of your child is to be one yourself. Are you one of those folks who revels in taking credit for your children's good conduct and attributes their bad conduct to God's sovereignty? When he or she does something of significance and value, that's my girl. That's my son. But when drunkenness, foul language, sexual sin, and other wayward conduct, evil is displayed, you say, that's not how I raised my children. I did the best I could, but if she's not of the elect, there's nothing I could do. It's hyper-Calvinism, by the way irresponsible, has no place in Christ's church nor in Christian parenting. There's no such thing as an overemphasis on God's sovereignty, because it is the ruling doctrine of the whole Bible. The eternal God is and has always been in utter sovereign control of all things, and it is man's comically inflated view of himself that makes him think otherwise. But there certainly can be an underemphasis on man's responsibility when one misunderstands God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in no way negates man's responsibility to obey God's commands, nor does it negate man's culpability for his sin, nor the consequences, nor for his lack of willingness to correct his children with regard to sin. It may be time for you to sit down with your children and seek their forgiveness for refusing to love them enough to instill a deep and consistent fear of God in them and showing a greater love for self by refusing to obey the Lord in this primary responsibility in your home. Children are the product of the parenting they receive. Right? If not, what are they a product of? You must rest in God's sovereignty, but you must never use it as an excuse for your hypocrisy and irresponsibility, pride, and failure to repent and be humble. You should not be puzzled by your children's disinterest in the things of the Lord when you have shown anything less than a life of fervent prayer to the Lord and a holy hatred of evil in your own life. You might say, but Todd, your children aren't old enough yet for you to understand how difficult it is to raise teenagers, and that is exactly the attitude that results in parent failure. You might say, no one understands. You think your situation is different. It's worse than any situation you've ever seen. If you have older children and you've become experts in their weaknesses and sins, have you traced any of that sin and weakness back to your parenting or your unwillingness to live in reality? How about this? Well, I did my best, but my husband or wife was just not on the same page. If only we'd been a team. Let me destroy that mindset for you. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, Paul says, But to the rest I say, not to the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean. In other words, if that were the case, then it would be hopeless. But now they are holy, Paul says. You say, well, but my you know, spouse isn't an unbeliever. He's just kind of hard to live with. Well, which is better, an unbelieving spouse or a believing spouse? Paul's speaking here to those who have unbelieving spouses, and he says, in that seemingly worst-case marital scenario, your kids cannot be prevented from becoming holy. And yes, it to a great degree does come down to your parenting. If you're the person who says, well, then I guess my spiritual condition is just my parents' fault. I never said that, and you won't find that in Scripture. Parents exercise great influence on their children, but each man and each woman will give an account for his own soul as well as those who've been given to his or her care. So, what do you do? Think rightly. Start with that. Think rightly about the consequences of evil. When your friends, when your children whine, when your children complain, When your children dishonor you by how they act in your home or someone else's home, it's evil. Now, our society wouldn't like that statement, but you should know that that's true. Where then do you draw the line if you don't draw it here? You love your children. But unfortunately, it's very, very easy in our culture to become overwhelmed with fearing our children rather than fearing God. Proverbs 29, verse 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Well, you don't understand. Spanking doesn't work with my child. Oh, so you're the exception. Are you a pragmatist? Really? You're looking for what works? See, you're a theologian. You're not a pragmatist when it comes to things of the Bible. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son while there is hope. And do not desire his death. Believe me, as my children get older, I'm pleading with the Lord, help me to do this well while there's still hope because I know the day is coming where there won't be. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. It's a practical hatred. The person who refuses to discipline his son physically is exhibiting a practical hatred for his child. But... He who loves him disciplines him diligently. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. It's the continuation of that that mindset. The person who disciplines his children is training his child to be satisfied with righteousness, but the one who is wicked does not want discipline because his parents trained him to believe that it's bad to be disciplined. Act however you want, it's only a phase. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Don't create good Pharisees by saying, you know what? My kid's pretty good. He's kind of easy to handle. You know, spanking just just never really did it for him or her. Completely defies what the Scripture commands. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 22, 15. And then the other side of the coin, and just one verse on this. Just one verse. Ephesians 6, verse 4. For those parents who are saying, well, you know what? The problem is my my spouse is just too easy on the kids. I like what you're saying, Todd. This is good. We need to be harder on them. I didn't say that. I did not say that. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're talking about the loving discipline of a father who deeply loves his children and therefore gives them a little taste of hell so they won't go there. Now, with regard to all this, how is this done? Back to chapter 2 in First Peter. Chapter 2, verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What Christ have you do? How would he have you parent your children? Well, that's my, you know, my wife, she stays home with the kids, so she does that. Or no, no, he, that's his job. He's the man. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You know that you can discipline your children without sinning? And you should. And if you do it otherwise, then that's not helpful. You know, attempting to require something from your children that you yourself are not exhibiting. The angry man who disciplines his kids because they're angry in his anger. Verse 23, first Peter 2. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return, right? He didn't insult those who insulted him. I'm your father. How dare you talk to me like that? It's not helpful. Comments like that are not helpful, men. He didn't revile while being reviled. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He stayed in God's word. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. As I mentioned to you earlier in chapter 3, verse 18, we'll be there in a very short time. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Don't you want your kids to know that? Don't you want the people in your influence to know that? This is the condition into which man is born. And what is the consequence for that evil condition? It is not that man needs to be told to think a little more highly of himself, to just have a better view of himself, to just, you know, think better. It is that he would understand his condition and that he would know what the consequences are and he would fear the God who brings those consequences for that evil. Your children, my children, you, me, we are no less depraved in our natural born state than the worst dictator on the planet. We are born with the same depravity. You say, but I haven't expressed mine like he has. Right, because God in his grace has given you restraint so the worst thing for you to do would be to say i'm not as bad as him the best thing for you to do would be to say god thank you for your grace that has restrained me from a full expression of the depravity into which i was born thank you for the grace that you've granted me to produce righteousness in me and father help me to lead my kids to the christ of righteousness rather than allowing them to continue in unrighteous conduct and speech that defames me and others you May, may God help us. May God help us. You say, Todd, my kids are older. I I, um, I, I don't know what to do. Go to your kids. They're still your kids. Say they don't even hardly talk to me. Go to them anyway. Do what you can. Plead with the Lord to give you an avenue. Seek their forgiveness and mean it. Oh, my word, please don't give lip service to this. That'll only make things worse. They'll see right through it. Be the righteous person whose prayer God hears. Be the righteous person to whom God gives His attention. Refuse to be the hyper-Calvinist who blames his children's waywardness on God's sovereignty and recognize that you did and you do play a role in your offspring's lives. And as you become increasingly devoted to righteousness, you will have an increasingly great platform upon which to have influence on your kids no matter what their age. Father, we're grateful for your clear and stark instructions to us. Lord, I think we live in a society that doesn't live in reality. And Lord, I plead with You to help us to not succumb to that. Help us to truly be in the world, but not of it. May our conduct be righteous at heart, righteous in speech. May who we are be reflective of Your character but I pray for all the parents in this room today, including myself, that when the difficulties of life seem to be manifest so greatly that there is discouragement and the seeming inability to overcome the difficulties of life, much less parenting, that You would make us a people who would return to Your sufficient Word Lord, help us never, ever, ever to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but to always trust that Your Word is right and true and good and where we have failed, that we would quickly and adamantly and passionately correct that we would genuinely subject ourselves to Your Word. I close with these words from Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all Your righteous acts, let now Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy mountain, for because of our sins, the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and Your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own but on account of Your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For Your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because Your city and Your people are called by Your name. Amen.